Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It is finally time for us here at Crack Rackets to put a final bow on the 2022 season. And of course, there have been so many fantastic storylines, so many fantastic results for us to break down throughout the course of the year. With that said, what fun is an end-of-season discussion if you're not handing out awards? And that is precisely... Precisely what we plan to do here on today's podcast to put a final bow on the 2022 season. We're going to be offering our year-end awards for everything that happened on the ATP Tour. And of course, some of that is going to be your standard mainstream award conversation. Who was the ATP Player of the Year in 2022? Who was the most improved, the newcomer, the comeback player of the year? Those topics we want to discuss here on today's show. But of course, as we always do here at Cracked Rackets, we got to get creative as well. And when you're looking back at a season, it's not just about results. It's about storylines, the individual matches, the moments from the season from players that you'll remember. So of course, we've got some made-up awards here as well. What were the best rivalries? Who were the most enjoyable players to watch on court? We'll get to one of our guests' rendition of the No No Drama, No 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 Drama Award later on as well. And with that in mind, if you're going to be handing out all this hardware, if you're going to be having these sorts of debates, you got to bring in the big guns here on this show. And normally I like to think I'm the most excited person for a podcast, but honestly, I think one of our guests is most excited for this Cracked Rackets holy trinity of contributors to, for the first time, be together on a show. And joining us on today's show to hand out the ATP awards. I apologize, but it's in his contract that he goes first. Our newest Crack Rackets contributor, host of the Monday Match Analysis Show, host of 3A Tennis Show, a tennis channel contributor extraordinaire, my eyebrowed nemesis and dear friend Gil Gross. Gil, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. You excited to hand out some awards? Woo, that was, uh, <laughs> you got, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. All right, I'm ready to to jump right through the uh, Zoom screen right now. You know, this is great. This is going to be a fun show today. I appreciate that you wore your formal Rangers gear here today as well because this is you dressing up for the show. And we were joking around. I've had the opportunity now to be at Monday Match Analysis HQ. The corner shot Gil Gross is able to put on A-plus in Corners 101 at Newhouse Media School, clearly, for Gil. I mean, again, you just it's a professional display, as always. We are happy to have you back on the show. And also joining us once again here today, a man who you essentially know as a co-host of our mini-break podcast. Of course, you can read his writing on Tennis.com, where he is an editorial producer. Of course, it is our dear friend, David Kane, the man who is most excited for this podcast. DK, we finally made it happen. You excited to hand out some awards? Well, first of all, I'm guessing I'm going second because it's alphabetical order. <laughs> yeah. But... But I got to say, I had a lot of questions when Alex suggested bringing in a third. I, my first question was, is it Westhoff? And then my second question was, how big are his eyebrows? And he said, massive. And I said, twist my arm. So I'm glad to see you, go. I'm glad we're all together. Oh, it's great to just be together. And I actually have an early question for you, David, because obviously I'm a follower of all things you do. Ilya Melanin. 
he can't quite do the quintuple axle, but do you think he can do a quintuple jump of any form? He's already halfway there. A quadruple axle is four and a half revolutions. And so a quint is a lo- what a lot of people were thinking we're going to see sooner than a quad axle because of that extra ca- that counter rotation, I believe, that is involved in an axle to forward takeoff. It's seemingly more difficult than perhaps a quint, which is just an extra revolution. But because of that stick straight body and the fact that he's able to twist uh, and get into that snap so early, I think we might see a quint from him. But I haven't been watching too much skating this season. I'm, I'm trying to catch up over the offseason for tennis, that is. I'll tell Jenna to listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, some topics she'll enjoy. No, I mean, first of all, what would be more impressive to you, DK? Iga Sviantek's 50% break percentage for a full season or Ilya hitting the quint? Well, we've, only one of which we haven't ever seen before. So I think if, if we're going to see something, it would be different if Iga debuted a brand new shot, perhaps something on, <laughs> okay. along the lines of maybe, maybe not quite a saber, but maybe if she brought out a different piece of equipment entirely that would, and was able or to she win like a grand slam with held it. the racket head and hit with the handle. Like if she started doing that, that's the quint equivalent. Sort of like just turning the sport upside down or just breaking a new ground entirely uh, or cracking new ice, I guess. Gil, any quintuple thoughts? I'm just trying to think of like what that shot might be like. What if someone, what what if like a Nicolescu w- was so good at it, we discovered like, oh, you should slice all your forehands. Yeah. Like, that's actually <laughs> the best way to do it. That would be the equivalent. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I mean, they're definitely, some will say the tweener. I think the tweener's gotten a little too mainstream. I think we need to find a new trick shot because everyone goes for, it's like if it's a lob over your head and it's an insignificant point, you're going to try a tweener. And I think we can be more creative. Maybe it's the behind the back. Maybe it's, you know, the no look. We'll, we'll figure things out. But, of course, you know, that's something we can all look forward to in 2023, what I want to do here today with both of you as we do want to put that final bow on the 2022 season is, of course, break down the ATP awards. And, look, I had this discussion with our dear friend, and I think you guys both know him well, Nick McCarville, who, for the record, in case you can't tell, DK clearly fed me that question for you because I wanted to come in prepared here today. And, you know, we talked about the significance of year-end awards. And in comparison, certainly to domestic sports here in the U.S., you know, an NFL MVP, a Super Bowl MVP, an NBA Coach of the Year, or NBA Rookie of the Year, they are, there are all of these accolades that when you look back at a player's career, they are mentioned. You know, LeBron James being, what is it, a four-time MVP, that matters. Michael Jordan being a six-time Finals MVP, that sort of thing is brought up in the discussion Nick McCarville may do it when he's introducing players as an MC, but no one in a Hall of Fame argument is being like, but Petra Kvitova was the 2012 Most Improved Player of the Year. You know, that never comes up. When we go through the Serena accolades, it's not she has X amount of Player of the Year titles, Navratilova has Y, Graf has Z. You know, player awards, in my opinion, don't have the gravitas in tennis that they might in other sports. I'll start with you, David Kane. You are a WTA postseason awards voter, and I don't mean to minimize your efforts because both Gil and I sit here jealous of that fact, but do postseason awards matter in tennis? First of all, just a, a, a gross uh, oversimpl- a gross instance of voter suppression. I'll be sure to uh, report that to the WTA this, as soon as I can. I mean, let's be honest. WTA awards are mostly their media awards, which is literally what they are. The media votes on them, and they're something to you know keep 
engage it's it's engagement before engagement was invented you know it was the sort of thing where now we have a venue through which to discuss and debate these sorts of things that we didn't really have before and so it's sort of presaged that we were going to have this kind of um opportunity to to chat these things to their fullest extent i mean the the only player award that i remember being really intense was the 2013 wta most improved award where it was really some harsh battle lines drawn between sloan stevens and simona halep i think halep ultimately got the nod but there was some you know one of those quantity versus quality arguments was sloan stevens's australian open semifinal worth more than sort of the the breadth of what simona halep had achieved at lower level tournaments that season I would still go with Halep there, but I'm, I'm open to arguments a decade later who, who had most improved that year. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, so Gil, same question to you with it being, we have fun with these conversations. And as tennis, you know, when I'm with my friends, this strikes me as the sort of conversation that would be fun to have as it regards to tennis. Who was the best player of any year? And yet, again, significantly culturally to the sport, it feels like it's not brought up in a Hall of Fame debate. It, it shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. It, it makes sense that it's not. Tennis is the objective sport. Tennis is the sport where, like Grusky, you know, in college recruiting, these coaches barely have to watch the players play. Uh, they see what the numbers are. It, it's just we have a year-end number one, and that's your MVP. And we don't need, with all due respect to us folk, <laughs> we don't need us folk to tell everybody who the best player was because we have a mathematical uh, system that honestly works pretty well. I mean, people will have bones to pick about it. Obviously, this year was wonky uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, it works pretty well, and that's okay. Yeah, I I disagree with you in that they don't uh, that they shouldn't matter. I think in their current form, you're right; they don't matter, and I understand that. But I just disagree. I think what awards do is they tell the story of a season. And if you're talking about the most significant things, looking back at 2022, and you know we'll get into this in this player of the year argument. Are we going to remember it? Nadal snuck in two more slams. Are we going to remember Djokovic being really good at Wimbledon, really good after the U.S. Open? Or will we remember it as the Carlos Alcaraz breakout season? And shouldn't the, you know, shouldn't the awards, David Kane, be a reflection of the storylines we saw manifest throughout the course of a year? I mean, I think it's particularly interesting this year when you compare the ATP awards to the WTA awards, because I think when you look at the WTA awards, certainly the top line nominations, it feels quite laughable that there's even a discussion when it comes to WTA player of the year but you there were certainly years in the past where maybe a 2012 even where Azarenka Sharapova and Serena split the slams and you think well there's maybe an argument to be made about the about one over the other but um and I think that's the case right now with the ATP when you look back at 2022 there are some really key storylines I would primarily talk to talk about Carlos Alcaraz winning his first slam Nadal being the first to get past 20 the way Djokovic finished the season I mean there are certainly arguments to be made for the three i mean the media awards are like book club it's like did you read the book <laughs> and here are some discussion questions for fans and media to sort of chew on as we wait for the next book to be assigned to us the 10 month long book that's going to be 2023 and, if, and then if you miss the book then you can catch the movie in january when the netflix <laughs> documentary drops so i guess here's the test how often does player of the year contradict with year end number one and if it happens often, then I think there's a good argument to be made. Oh, well, we should pay attention to player of the year because maybe the 
you know, whole year end number one thing isn't really doing what we want it to do, which is say kind of who the best player was over the course of the year. And, and this is one of those years on the men's side where the the potential player of the year, I mean, the world number one is in the conversation, but it's clearly not a shoo-in. Yeah, my only issue is, you know, again, because I think it, player of the year is just the world number one, right, on the ATP tour. It's just like the world number one ultimately is named player of the year, that it's not – and then Correct. Yeah, and then there's a separate vote. Like, I think players vote on the player of the year as well. That's a separate thing that happens. But, yeah, it's just – so, you know, Carlos Alcaraz will be – your ATP world number one. They've already given him the trophy. That said, and look, with that in mind, I suppose we can get right into it. When you look at the player of the year argument, this might be the most fun postseason argument of any of the postseason awards you see, whether it be on the men's or the women's side. Certainly on the women's side, we know who the player of the year is. It's own Jabur. Just kidding, David. Wanted to make sure you're awake. He is. It's obviously Iga Sviantek. On the men's side, we know it comes down to three candidates. Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Carlos Alcaraz. I will start with you, David Kane. Of those three candidates, who is your ATP Player of the Year? Well, going through those three categories or three candidates, I think you'd first have to rule out Djokovic, primarily just because he didn't play through the entire year. I think when you miss two slams, you know, as impressive as his finish to the season was, it was a finish to the season that involved, you know, trips to places like Tel Aviv and and uh, and the like. But I think it really comes down to if it's a battle between Nadal and Alcaraz, what you value. Do you value the present, which is this continuing goat debate between Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer in absentia? Or do you value the future, which is this idea that this was the first of what many believe to be many slams from Carlos Alcaraz? And I think the tiebreaker for me would be that for the last two decades or so, uh, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer winning a slam is not really the thing that you necessarily remember a year for. It's just sort of what makes the year similar to any other year. So I think if we, assuming things go according to plan for Carlos Alcaraz, I think this will be the, the year we remember as his big breakout. And so with that caveat, I would pick, I would lean towards Alcaraz over Nadal. For me, when one player wins, has more slams than everybody else, over the course of, of a year, there better be a really, really compelling case that someone else was better than them in order to usurp that. So Rafa finishes two with two and Carlos gets one and Novak gets one. If you're, to me, Novak or Alcaraz, and you're right, you know, Djokovic doesn't have enough there. Uh, he didn't play enough to give himself a chance to even do it. Uh, Alcaraz wasn't dominant enough outside of that u.s open uh there's you know what there's the miami title there's the madrid title um you know there are other titles in there uh, you got there would need to be more to leapfrog the fact that rafa had two majors and the other two had one 2020 was like an interesting year you had three slams that year you had team with one rafa with one and novak with one and now we start talking about okay what happened outside of the slams. Let's just throw the slams aside. That's rarely the case. And I think in 2022, it's about Nadal winning those first two majors of the year. And it pretty much seals the deal for him. Well, I like that David made the Alcaraz case, that you've made the Nadal case. 
let me make the Djokovic case because I do actually think statistically there's a pretty easy case to make that he is still very clearly, and I know neither of you guys are arguing against this, but foundationally, player of the year, one of the criteria I think everyone has in their head, well, who was the best player? Who played the best tennis of anyone we saw this season? The stats are pretty convincing in saying that when he was on court, Novak Djokovic's best was better than everyone else's best this season. You look for Djokovic statistically, DK, this is for you. He's the only guy to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage this season. You look at just his win percentage overall this year, Novak Djokovic winning 85.7% of his matches. He's 42-7 and for the year. He, Nadal, Alcaraz, the three players all over 80%, but Djokovic again, 85-7. Nadal, who played fewer matches than Djokovic, let the record show. Nadal, excuse me played 47, leave that in. Djokovic played 49. So it's tough to say if you're making the case for Nadal, you know, if your argument for Nadal in lieu of Djokovic is Djokovic didn't play two of the slams, fine, but he still ended up playing more matches than Rafa this year. You know, Rafa's at 83%. Alcaraz is 57 and 13, 81.4%. You also look even, uh, you know, dive further into the numbers. Top 20 total wins on the season. Djokovic has 19. Alcaraz has 18. Nadal has 13. Top 10 wins on the season. Djokovic has 11. Alcaraz has 9. Rafa has 8. So even in the limited calendar, strength of schedule suggests Djokovic was still a little bit better against the best competition than the other two. Obviously, the reason he wasn't able to play those slams, I mean, it did have to do with himself. He could have gotten vaccinated and played. That's always part of the discussion. But, you know, when he did play the slams, served for the fourth set against Rafa at the French Open, wins Wimbledon pretty convincingly. And then to rip off the five straight wins at the year-end finals, it is a good feather in his cap. I do actually think there's a strong Novak Djokovic case to be made. (sighs) That said, and not to act as the arbiter here, I think I would lean Alcaraz. Like, outside of the two slam wins, I want to go to you here, Gil— Outside of the two, like the the entire predicate of the Rafa argument is he won two slams, right? Like that's really the case you're making. I just don't think that's enough. I do. Like, I, I, okay, this is this is what matters in the end when we look back. I mean, so year end number one matters. Alcaraz got that. It's just the the issue with that is he didn't really go head to head in that category with Rafa or Novak because Nadal missed all the time because of injuries. He literally had three to the to the extent that I was thinking about the rib injury today and I had forgotten. I was like, oh yeah, there was a rib injury in there <laughs> uh, with the foot and the ab. It's like you forget. Uh, then of course, Djokovic with the vaccination or lack thereof. <laughs> so he didn't, you know, that year and number one, first of all, I don't think Djokovic or Nadal care anymore to be year and number one. Nadal has said as much. Sure. Uh, because they've, you know, they've, and Novak has broken Rogers' records in that category. So it's kind of out of the equation for them anyway. But I feel like the one thing that Carlos Alcaraz did achieve, uh, he didn't actually, he wasn't actually competing with those guys to achieve that. Uh, whereas what we're going to look back at in terms of what the history books remember with the season um, on a grand scale is are the majors. So, I wonder if this would be a different conversation if Nadal won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open because it's been a while here. 
And there's definitely like, we have to try really hard when we do these end of year uh, awards to not have that recency bias of what happened in the second half of the season. The first half of the ATP season was carried by Nadal. January was Nadal. February was indoor hardcore and it was Felix and Rublev and we throw that aside. And then, you know, Indian Wells, Nadal was in the final and had the injury. Like, he won Acapulco uh, right before the Sunshine Double. He couldn't play Miami. And then he comes back clay court season and and wins in Paris. Like, the first half of the season was about Rafa to the extent that the second half of the season was not about Alcaraz or even really Djokovic until the indoor season. Yeah, that's a strong case there, uh, is that Nadal's first half is better than the totality of Alcaraz, and, as well as the lack of significance on the final end. You've heard the arguments, David Kane. Where do you where do you rest? Any changes? Or are you sticking with Alcaraz? No, absolutely. I mean, there is a case to be made about recency bias because you do when you think back to June and thinking that even the calendar year Grand Slam was on the table for Rafael Nadal. It was there was he was carrying and taking up most of the narrative oxygen in 2022 to that point. I think for me at the same time, Alcaraz consumed just as much oxygen for large parts. I mean, we go, we talk about going that stretch going into the French open. It was all about whether he was going to win his first slam, maybe to a lesser degree, but still fairly strong going into Wimbledon. All right, this guy's our next champion. When is he going to win his first slam? And then going into the summer. So I think that combined with just sort of the, I mean, it's it's tricky because this is the year that he did win his 21st, 22nd. He broke that three-way tie. So relative to the sort of big three canon, that may be, you know, uh, statistically significant um, as what, given whether or not Djokovic surpasses that or whether Nadal's able to build on that. But at the end of the day, for me, I just think we, we've been looking for this next guy for so long that I think there is going to be an emphasis on wanting to emphasize somewhat other than the big three when we look back on this year and i think there are so many other years that we that we can declare all about one of them that again from an editorial perspective i think you have to kind of go with alcaraz for for the sake of variety but i i understand for sure i think if he had won wimbledon in the u.s open it would have just been an adult conversation for sure i am on team david k i apologize Gil, but I'm team DK on this one just because statistically, again, Alcaraz, one of five players to rank top 20 in hold and break percentage. Nadal, for what it's worth, was top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Does, DK, percentage. does DK give you give you flack for, for bringing that up? Because, <laughs> because if I were to ever give you flack for bringing that up, it would be in this conversation. Well, here's what I'll say. You should listen to the podcast, and you'll find out if he gives me flack or not. That, that should be... not be anywhere <laughs> no. No, in, no, no, this, no, no, no. in the player of I'm, the year no, no. dialogue. This is, this is why I... I bring it up, is that statistically, they are not different. Like, again, it's not as though statistically what Rafa was doing was immeasurably better than uh, Carlos Alcaraz. That's the point I'm trying. I, I'll, I'll round it home, I promise. That's what you're telling me to do, and you're right. I should. Um, again, I went through the top 10, top 20 wins. Djokovic is first. Alcaraz is second, and not by that much uh, in those categories. He did have second most top 20 wins, second most top 10 wins. I also think, getting back to my rules of I want the awards to reflect the narrative that mattered most to me, and this is where I agree spot on with DK, when we look back at 2022, I don't think we're ultimately going to remember it as Rafa snuck in his 21st and 22nd majors. I don't think we're going to remember it as Djokovic got his 21st, was banned from Australia, but now will be back there next year. I think that narrative goes away as soon as he wins Australia in January. I think when we look back at this season, we will remember it as the year Carlos Alcaraz made the leap 
and became one of the guys in that Tier 1 conversation, became one of the guys who is leading SportsCenter with his highlights, who all of our casual friends who are sports friends but don't really watch tennis that closely are texting us and saying, who is this Carlos Alcaraz guy? Between the combination of his strong year statistically, winning that first slam, ending the year world number one, and then the extra narrative component putting him over the top, that's why I'm Team DK. Final word on this award goes to you. Gil, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, so, I forgot so there were think, three of us. Yeah, so yeah. I, I get it. So you think this is this is like Federer 02, Nadal 05, Djokovic 11. Like, yes, these are years we think of as they arrived. And Alcaraz 2022 could be in that conversation. I get it. Okay. Yeah, I also— uh, but, I, but I think we're giving him a bonus. We're giving him bonus points because he's fresh and new. And in terms of—and I think we've acknowledged that. So if we're going to do that, I get it. DK, you look like you had something to add. Yeah, I was also going to say, I think it also kind of speaks to my and perhaps Grusk's uh, shared lack of confidence that Nadal ends this big three race ahead. Because exactly. I think yep. this year is only significant for Nadal if this is what gets him ahead and keeps him ahead. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if Djokovic ends up winning three, four, five more slams and Nadal doesn't, then who broke 21st sort of means less in the grand scheme of things. Very well said. The other thing I like to do with these awards, and I think I've had you both on award shows before, so you may remember this. I'm stealing this bit. Gil, you may recognize it from Bill Simmons. Weight of the trophy on a scale of zero pounds to 100 pound. And 100 pound season being... Djokovic's 2015 season or 2011 season or, you know, Federer from 04 to 06 when he's winning everything, Rafa in 2010, one of those, you know, pantheon type of seasons. I don't think it's a pantheon season for Carlos Alcaraz, but because he is a teenager and he had this sort of success that he's, as you both know, not eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation. I'll start with you, Gil. Scale of zero to 100 pounds. How big is this player of the year trophy? Or you could give it to Rafa in your scenario. How big is it for him? Uh, for Rafa, I don't know. So uh, for it's not it's not that heavy. Like I think mm. Alcaraz, there's a lot, as you said, there's a lot more for him to do. And it's, you know, this is the breakout season, but this isn't, going to be the banner season and you know it wasn't a dominant season because he's not ready like as a player he is not fully developed whatsoever and he has a lot of progress to make Uh, but it was a huge bonus that you know he did have that kind of invincible stretch and uh and then he got the u.s open um in early september so uh i don't know like scale zero to 100 it's uh it's a 40-pound trophy. Alcaraz has a lot more to do. It's an arbitrary scale. Can I tell you, Gil? That felt right. That feels like 40 is a good number. <laughs> i like, yeah, that works for me. DK, some scholars have argued you lift a lot of weights. Um, give me your number. Give me the pound of oh. this trophy. Oh, my, but the rumors are true. I am heading back <laughs> to Equinox. But, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if, if, we're, if we're comparing the Alcaraz 2022 to past historical seasons, I think the closest comparison would be perhaps – Either Federer 03 or Nadal 05, that's sort of that breakout year. Maybe even, I obviously I have Nadal closer in my head because I was watching a lot more consistently in 05 than I was in 03. I was a little bit younger. But um, <laughs> I think that I do remember the, the Nadal-Federer rivalry, Nadal usurping uh, Federer at the French Open and maybe not necessarily carrying that all the way through to the end. I mean, we're also talking 
without the context of what Alcaraz would have been able to do or not been able to do at the ATP finals. I think if he had done what he'd been able to do at Madrid or at the U S open and made the final or one, that would certainly be something in his, um, in his cap as well. We're, we're having to analyze the season without the benefit of that, which, you know, a, a, a birth at the finals, which he certainly deserved, but um, yeah, 40 pounds. I mean, cause I think, again, this is the sheer magnitude of his potential. This is a guy who, could win every slam that he plays from here to eternity. I mean, the, the shots that this man is able to pull off. I mean, I, I was there at that U.S. Open final against Casper Ruud. Just sort of the the miraculous athleticism that he pulls off makes you wonder if he'll ever lose a match again. And so it was it was shocking that he didn't run the table in the way that Djokovic did in the fall. But I guess again that speaks to Djokovic's uh, immense talent. No, all of that is fair, and I think that puts a pretty good perspective. Again, by the way. I'll ask you both this final question, then we'll move on to our next category, and we're not going to spend this long on every category, I promise. But we all agree, I'll start with you, DK, Djokovic is still the best player in the world, right? He shouldn't be, <laughs> based on time and and sort of rust and, you know, the, the amount of time that he spent off court during the year. But no, I mean, when he is at his best and when he's playing well and he's confident, he certainly felt like he had a lot to prove at this stretch of the season and really wanted to end this year with sort of the narrative and um, momentum behind him heading into 2023. I mean, I think, again, that's why we think that he's really going to be the favorite to break that uh, break that tie and move ahead of, of Nadal in 2023. Uh, yeah, I guess he is right now the best player in terms of experience. He's that sort of that apex of experience versus potential versus, you know, uh, skill set. And obviously with Alcaraz ending the season injured, that kind of gives, you know, a, a big knock against Alcaraz going into next year. So yeah, I think right now he is the best player of the year and he would be my sub, you know, tentative favorite going into AO23. Three at tennis show, final words to you. Yeah, uh, he showed that. Um, yeah. If you look at winning Wimbledon, coming back after after the US Open and, and what he did, he won everything he played except a Paris Masters that, you know, he had every opportunity to win that final as well and just had a really strangely unclutch match. Um, that's that's what he showed. I mean, he, you know, you and I, you and I have liked to look at it this way. If he got, he um, took three tournaments to get going. Three tournaments, he just wasn't himself. You could say Madrid, he wasn't yet himself, but let's say that he was, and Alcaraz just beat him. He won. He played six big events and won three of them. If you go an entire season winning fifty percent of the big events that you play, you're having an unbelievable season. So that's kind of the pace that Novak was holding. And I think he has shown that right now he is the best player. Yeah, was, that was a figure skating schedule from Djokovic. Six events in one year. <laughs> there you go. Hey, he's, he's the By the way, in the Nick McCarville, I say if I'm going to talk about someone, I'll do it to their face. In the Nick McCarville podcast, DK, I called you, you have a PhD in all OVAs. Is that fair? Would you say you have a PhD in OVAs? I thought you were going to say eminently handsome, but sure, I'll, I'll yeah. take that as well. <laughs> well, that's implied, of course, in everything you do, DK. Um, all right, with that said, let's move on to our next category. And, of course, these ATP Awards show doing it now is a little bit trickier than the WTA show because we still don't know who the nominees are on the men's side. So guess what? I Googled we, it before. I was thinking, do I have some I, reference here or am I just going to come up with some off the fly? You know, DK was giving me grief, listeners, that I sent an outline to him beforehand. I also sent him the Zoom link at nine minutes before we were supposed to start, which people who have ever come on this podcast know that is very, very rare here at Cracked Rackets. Um, and then you and, weren't ready. 
Yeah. It was a big day. <laughs> and then I wasn't ready. Well, I just did a script somehow. Uh, you know, make sure it wasn't an imposter. Uh, you guys weren't getting hoodwinked. But um, anyways, all of that is to say um, in the outline, I would have sent you the award nominees if we had them. We don't have them. So, Gil Gross, I will ask you. Do you have a nominee for most improved player? Do you have a couple nominees you're ready to get to right away, or would you like to hear my list? No, I'll I'll go for it. Um, I like it. We were talking off air about who you argued for on the WTA side, Igor Sviantek, and I was kind of disappointed to hear it because it kind of is stealing my thunder. Oh, there it bit. is. Yes, but okay. It's obviously Carlos Alcaraz. It's okay. clearly Carlos Alcaraz. The only argument against Alcaraz is most improved is you could say that this was somewhat predictable. I would push back against that a little bit. Now, before the year, I predicted him to finish 2022 seven in the world. And at the time, that was going out on a limb. And I was actually, like, in March, patting myself on the back. I was like, oh, good prediction, Gil, seven in the world. Like, that looks <laughs> pretty good. Like, And then it turned out to be completely underselling him. So, clearly, it's Alcaraz. I think that's a very good argument to make. In our pre-show discussion, DK, you were pushing back a bit on that notion that, as Gil alluded to, the leap Alcaraz made, becoming very good and being on the precipice of being a guy to becoming the guy. Like, that is the leap every player chases in every aspect of their career. And obviously, we joke around, he's not eliminated from the greatest of, of all time conversation because at 19 years old, we've seen him make that leap this season, of course. You know, the the consecutive five-set matches at the U.S. Open just got better and better and better. And I, I will continue to say, there's a world where Sinner wins that match and he wins the U.S. Open. And then all this conversation's about him to end the season. And I mean, he had match points on serve. So, like... We weren't that far away from that Alcaraz world, uh, from that Sinner world existing. That said, it was Carlos who pulled through. And again, it was the feather in the cap of what was clearly a breakout season. You guys have made the comparisons. Nadal 05, Federer 03. I mean, Djokovic, the thing with Djokovic 11, it was just like 42 in a row. Like, come on. That was an entirely different monster. Um, well, Gil, also, he was, he was in the Andy Murray zone before yeah, exactly. 2011. So it was a little different. Exactly. So with that said, DK... Your most improved player, do you need nominees, or is this Alcaraz argument now resonating with you? I do have a nominee, but I feel like the people pleaser in me is sort of jumping out because I I didn't feel like I was going to be swayed by an argument about Alcaraz, especially up against a comparison like Iga Sviantek. Is she the most improved player of the WTA Tour? I think the difference between Sviantek and Alcaraz and why I'm more amenable to an (laughs) Alcaraz argument is because Iga Sviantek didn't begin didn't end 2021 looking one way and started 2022 looking like the Hulk. I, I think that would be sort of a, the, when we talk about Alcaraz's improvements, it's most certainly we're thinking of the physical improvements. I mean, he looks like an entirely different guy out there on court. And I think that's why when we watch him play now, we feel like, wow, this guy can perhaps never lose a match again, because it's not just the technique. It's not just the mental toughness, you know, that, that it, uh, belies his age. It's the fact that he is just physically as strong as the best guys in the world who also happen to be in their mid to late thirties. So I think that kind of, it gives him a lot of edge and that's certainly an improvement to be commended. But I think we've spent enough time talking about Carlos Alcaraz and not enough time talking about Casper Rude, who's there my most is. improved player of the year. I mean, honestly, when we talk about like stats and we know on this podcast, I'm not a big stats guy, but <laughs> Carl Casper Rude was not 
the guy to beat, not the guy to watch, on much less beat on hard courts coming into the season. And the fact that he has managed to string together Miami final, U.S. Open final, ATP finals final. I mean, where Alcaraz just looks physically very different, Rude feels like a completely different player to the one that, you know, narratively speaking, statistically speaking, than when he was in 2021. I wish he would have won one of those big finals to really kind of seal the deal there because then he would have been most approved with a bullet. But I think, you know, he's, th- and there's no way to go but up. I mean, he's defending nothing in the first six weeks of the season because he missed Aust- Australia due to injury. And so he's perhaps making that push back to number two, maybe even number one, and then to be my most improved player again for 2023. We could do this all again in 12 months. The problem with Rude is there's very arguably few. last year was his most improved year. <laughs> No, he was in this conversation last year. I think he 100%. went from 32, 32 in the world to eight in the world. I, I think that was it. I mean, if if I remember that correctly, I mean, I'm. it's kind of weird that that's in my brain, but I think it is. Um, and I, I know he started this year as eight because I did check that. I wanted to look at the rankings to start the season. I think that's too high for most improved. I think you're pretty much disqualified if you're starting the year in the top eight. Well, unless you make the leap, unless you become the guy, like what Iga did, again, to be on the precipice of the top 10, to become the unequivocal number one, I would agree with you, Gil. I would also add, and by the way, DK, you don't know this, but I already have you booked in December for this Casper Rude podcast. Here is a conversation I think we – yeah, it's, look, it's December, guys. We got well, we to get warmed yeah. up first. Yeah, exactly. Um, is this a ceiling? Like, is this going to be the best year of Kasparud's Root's career? Because here's the thing. Two slam finals in a single year. Djokovic, Nadal, Federer made us numb to this. But look at the WTA Tour. That does not happen very frequently in an era of parody. And there are so many guys nipping at the bit who have legitimate uh, claim to this conversation. A guy like Felix, the to your point you made, Gil, earlier about Alcaraz, expected leap from Felix. Maybe we thought we'd see this level from him at some point, but a sixth consecutive season of improvement in his hold percentage. He ends the season top 10 in hold percentages. He ends the season top 10 overall. He got over that finals hump and won a couple of titles this year. I think there is a case for Felix to make in making a leap. Maybe not all the way up to tier number one, immediately heading into 2023, but he's certainly on the precipice of it heading into the year versus a guy like Kasparud, who again, respectfully, David, respectfully, not only was he this guy last year, like he was kind of this guy since August, 2020. Like this has been for these past two and a half years. This is what we've seen from Kasparud and listeners won't see this. David just shook his finger at me, but like you talk about a hard court improvement in his results. I guess I just fundamentally disagree because like last year on the hard courts, round of 16, Australia, quarterfinals, Canada, quarterfinals, Cincinnati wins a title in San Diego, quarterfinals, Paris, semifinals, tour finals, Like, we kind of saw it last year as well. I agree with Gil. I think last year was the year for most improved. This year, I would say he held steady, which to hold steady as a top 10 player is obviously extraordinarily impressive. But I don't know that I'd qualify it as improvement, certainly in comparison to the leap Alcaraz made. First of all, I prefer the dynamic when you two are fighting over me. I don't really enjoy this, what's going on right now. But I think what we'll also add on top of the hard court narrative is the narrative that we didn't know what Kasper Ruud could achieve at Grand Slam tournaments. I mean, last year he made the third rounds of the Roland Garros and lost, I think, in five sets to Davidovich Fokin, and that was supposed to be his big Grand Slam breakthrough. 
didn't follow that up the rest of the season, misses Australia, is coming into the French Open at a tournament that, for me, felt like sort of a make-or-break moment in his sort of narrative arc of his career. He didn't have a great clay swing. Heading into Rome was really underperforming. Finally got his act together a little bit at that tournament and then did what he did in Paris. So I think when we talk about his improvements, I mean, yes, there's the hardcore improvement, but there's also a tremendous mental improvement, the way he was able to step to the line and make not only the French Open final, but also the U.S. Open final serve immensely well uh, in that semifinal, you know, killed. um, Who did he kill in the quarterfinals? Oh, Berrettini. He murdered Berrettini in a match that was like not even close. I was watching with my boy, Kenny Ducey, and he was just (laughs) apoplectic because- Weren't you with me too, DK? I was, I was, I was, I might've been sandwiched between you and Ducey and Steve Flink. It was a, it was quite a, quite a bunch. It was quite that a was four musketeers. Yeah. yeah it was squad goals. <laughs> Where <laughs> were you? You should have flown in. Oh. Um, yeah. So I think that, and then we looking back at that U S open final as amazingly as Alcaraz played for most of that tournament, Casper had his chances. He had those set points in the third set. And it really took that extra effort from Alcaraz. It could have been a very different final had Alcaraz, had Alcaraz missed one of those set points or had we managed to make one of those returns. So I think for me, again, if Alcaraz is on the table, certainly Root is on the table. So I, and, I'm, and I'm not taking him off the table. And I'm, I'm much less um, amenable to the Felix debate because I still want to see a really impressive slam result for him before I could say most. And just by the, the, again, sheer breadth of potential, I would say that Felix came into this year with more potential than Rude, and Rude surpassed him. Yeah, I, th- I think all of that's fair. Gil, final thoughts on this rude argument? Yeah, well, first of all, in terms of is this rude ceiling, um, I'd give a hard no on that. If you look at his trajectory, he has cut his ranking in half every single season, which mm-hmm. is basically what you want to do. Uh, he went from, from 112 at the end of 2018, 54 at the end of 2019, wow. 27 at the end of 2020, uh, 8 at the end of 21, and now three at the end of 22. So that like steady trajectory is uh, so admirable. And there's, you know, it's not slowing down. Now, obviously it's going to slow down uh, in terms of him cutting his ranking in half every year. And I do think there's reason to expect some ranking regression for Rude uh, next season. But that doesn't mean there's going to be regression of of who he is as a player. Um, no, I'm looking yeah, forward I that's to everything I want to say. To 2027 when he's ranked 0.125 in the world. <laughs> just, yeah, that. a delightful moment for all of us. Good argument. I won't lie, though. I love you, DK. Rude was not on my list. You want to hear my list as we go through, guys? Yeah, I need my, like, Francisco Surundolos. Yeah, exactly. So That's I'm, what I need. I'm glad you bring him up. No, he comes in the had a moment I'm award. Not. No, because we'll get back to the he had a moment award, which I will explain to you listeners when we get there. But that's a category. At, at some point one. tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> that's the he had a moment award. Hey, the best the best jokes come from a place of truth. Um, but that so that's where Sarundalo will go. All right, my list quickly. You guys can stop me if you have any significant thought or anything. Just raise your finger and I'll turn to you. I guess Elkaraz was at the top of my list. Felix is on it. Holger's on it, but it's not like it's not a perfect fit. But I mean. Did you see the end of the season? Compare him to January. He got a lot better, didn't he, DK? He's coming up. What, give give it a minute. He's coming up the next category. Okay, yeah, newcomer. That's a very good – look at you. You know the outline Spoiler alert. Yeah, that's great. Um, I got. I may have it pulled up. It's fine. Okay, a plethora of Americans. Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Brandon Nakashima, 
and I limited it, limited it to the top 100, so Ben Shelton is also on that list to me. If you wanted to put Francis on there, fine, but I actually think we'd seen flashes of this from him before. It was how consistent he was, but like I think Tommy and Taylor actually took significant leaps. I want to ask you, Gil, on the Americans' thoughts. Well, I think Fritz, a lot of the work was done last fall. Sure. Like his the Indian Wells that he had, his record against top 20 players after the U.S. Open last year was uh, stellar. Um, so that almost hurts Fritz because I don't think it was just a 2022 thing. Tommy Paul, yes, he definitely got better. Uh, again, the start period was Stockholm last year when he won that title. Uh, he's done good work. The rankings rise isn't, you know, it wasn't like holy, you know, holy crap. I, I think it was like 15 spots or something. It, it, um, something along those lines. Can I say, you know, I guess my thoughts and then Fritz, oh wait, we already talked about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can I just say, it's not a very good year for most improved. Is it kind of a tough year for that? No, because I think, and here's the other tier of candidates, Yoshihito Nishioka, top 40 debut. Like he's not the greatest. You're right. Like in terms of, this is why we agree. We give it to Alcaraz because he made the leap this season, but like Nishioka would be on my list. Yes, Gil. Can I read off the recent most improved players? Yes, please give us the past seven years. They've been way more convincing than what we have to work. Well, with last year, year was really good because it was rude. It was Nori. And I forget who the third was. Well, Karatsev it... won. Yeah, that, that was the wrong vote, but go on. Well, it's easy to say that now. <laughs> no, uh, check the tape, but go on. Rublev tears it up in 2020. Five well titles. Deserved. Well deserved. Like nine tournaments, right? Yeah, and like uh, nine weeks as well. Yeah. Uh, Berrettini in 2019. That was out of nowhere. Like yeah. people forget, you know, Berrettini was not really on the, he's going to be a, you know, top player. Radar. What was that about people? Does it? People weren't talking about it. Okay, good, good, good. Carry on. 2018 with Tsitsi, was uh, Tsitsipas and his like breakout year. 17 <laughs> was Shapovalov. I just feel like there have been more obvious options. 2022, it's not an awesome season for most improved player. DK, thoughts? I'm a little stuck on Shapovalov being most improved in 2017. I would have had him as newcomer during that <laughs> year, but I, I think just looking at the most improved, I think with the ATP also, you're also dealing with a situation where the tour is typically so striated that the the most improved and player of the year conversations are so different, you know, where in this case we have Alcaraz potentially, you know, dancing in both, in both categories. But I guess going back to the Americans, I guess I'll ask Gil and also Grusk, what, which Nadal upset was the most impressive to you? Fritz's <laughs> upset over Nadal in, what is it, Indian Wells? Uh, Paul's upset over Nadal in Paris or Francis's upset of Nadal at the U.S. Open? Maybe that breaks the tie for who was the most impressive American or most improved American. I defer to you first, Gil. It, it, it was Fritz. It was yeah. Fritz's. Like that. In a final. It was an Indian Wells final. Like, yeah, there was. And... I would have thought going into the match. It's funny. I say you go first. I would have thought going into the match <laughs> that Rafa was like, even without a rib, it was like, yeah, but he'll find a way. Because, like, there, there's no way Fritz keeps this up. And he kept it up. And it well, was Fritz like. Fritz was injured also. Like, that's a very yeah. important part of the match is Fritz was told not to play this match by everyone in his team. And he was just like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the Indian Wells final. I'm about to play Nadal. I, I'm absolutely playing this match. And you guys can go kick rocks. Um, 
but that was also undefeated top of the world nadal the u.s open i picked rafa to win the u.s open then i showed up to site i was seeing you know what his serve looked like and you know clearly the stomach wasn't healed and i'm like oh wow uh, that's not happening that was definitely the wrong pick that i made before the tournament before i realized what kind of physical shape he was in and then tommy paul is kind of the comeback event he hadn't played in a long time so uh, i think tiafo and tommy paul beat a compromised Rafa Fritz, even though you had the rib injury, that was, uh, at least the optics of it was that was undefeated on top of the world, Rafa. Yeah, completely fair. All right. The rest of my list, again, Americans, Tommy, Taylor, Nakashima, Shelton, Nishioka on the list, Musetti on the list. Draper will be in the newcomer conversation, but I think he has to be on the list. Shout out Ebing Wu. He was healthy. He this will be my comeback player this of is, the year. This is the entire top thousand. No, the last one is Arthur Rinderknesh. Shout out. Oh He's God. just like a legitimate. T- no, it's tiers of improvement. Okay, what sort of leap did you make? And we're talking about most improved. So tier. By I said I'll... tier one of improvement. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's why I would list be... that includes Yoshihito Nishioka as the most improved in the same conversation as Carl. I mean, only you would have that list, but that. List should not exist period yeah how many tiers did you jump again this is it's i was gonna say sophisticated <laughs> analysis it's really not um yeah you know what that's enough on most improved so there are oh, gail <laughs> and, final and thought yet i had the impulse to argue with you about Rinderknech. oh uh, like yes I, like a part of me wants to take time out of this take the bait to be like, take the bait he does not belong <laughs> in your tier three of most improved players but- yeah it's tier three exactly and i you know what's funny is i said gil or we had this conversation i go gil we'll limit it to three names a category because if we go beyond three it becomes chaos but again i make these rules to break them all right newcomer of the year i think it's pretty quick you already teased it dk give me the award winner I mean, I got to go with Holger Runa. I mean, that is actually the one interesting wrinkle in the Nadal, or rather, that is the one interesting wrinkle in the Djokovic arc going into 2023. It's sort of interesting to me that part of his whole raison d'etre this fall was to sort of reassert himself as the most dominant guy on tour to prove that these young guys still have to wait. And yet he gets into this final against a young guy and plays, as Gil mentioned, some fairly unclutched tennis, particularly in that third set. So I wonder heading into 2023, now he's got the loss to Alcaraz in Madrid, the loss to Runa in Paris, how that affects these big matches perhaps in 2023. Will they come in with more belief? Will Djokovic start to look a little shaky? I mean, we started to see that with Serena towards the end of her career. I mean, that's sort of that lack of in unshakable belief that I am the greatest player and I, I am completely unbeatable. We might st- start to see that happening with Djokovic. Perhaps, maybe, Not no offense to the spreadsheet. But um, yeah, I think unequivocally, you know, the Paris went alone, but obviously what he was able to do in Paris. I mean, I think Holger uh, is going to end up factoring into quite a few of these these funny, jokey categories. But I think on the serious one, he's easily newcomer. Yeah. By the way, I think this would come down to maybe the nominees will be Holger Runa. I do think Jack Draper will very much be on oh, that they, list. They'll nominate him for sure, yeah. Here will be the interesting one, who I think belongs in this discussion. Everyone's sipping on the Ben Shelton Kool-Aid now, right? We're all buying stock in Ben Shelton. And it's just like, I wonder if he has done enough over his six-month run, eight challenger quarterfinals, three challenger titles in three weeks, youngest player to do that, now also top 100. Will he sneak his name onto that newcomer ballot? Probably not, Gilgross. And I'm not saying he should win, but that would probably be my medal platform, gold, silver, uh, bronze. I like it from an evaluative standpoint, but isn't this an ATP Tour award? Yeah, (laughs) look. 
No, it's a discussion on a podcast about said awards, <laughs> hypothetically. So there's no rules. Yeah, so, so no, if you're going to frame it as will he get nominated, I would say no because I, I don't even think they – I could be wrong. I don't. I don't think challenger results are really well. I think into though, if, if you make the top one hundred, you now be. It's like because being the newcomer of the year, half of it is like cracking the top one hundred, which Runa did this season. Draper might have been like right on the skirts, but again, he'll outskirts, but he'll be there. And then obviously Shelton did as well. Well, this is why there's no conversation for Runa because we can think about players yeah. in this category who have <laughs> entered. Uh, you know, entered the top 100, and now they've positioned themselves to be a, a regular player on the main tour for next season. Uh, Runa did that and then made a lot of noise, you know, in the big leagues. And that's what kind of separates himself here. Even Draper, who definitely had a lot of big wins. I mean, he beat Felix at the U.S. Open. He beat Tsitsipas in Canada. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't have those big runs. He just had the big wins. Yeah, that that's fair. I mean, here's the thing. Runa beating Djokovic in the Paris final. Ben Shelton coming down from 5-4 in the first set against Michigan's Andre Styler, first round of NCAAs, to ultimately win that match in straights. Three-set win over August Holmgren in the final as well. I'd put that up against anything Runa did because it was a really tough path for Ben. Go watch the Adam Walton semifinal. Um, You're just trying uh, to piss me off right now. Yeah, exactly. It's working. <laughs> um, no, I... Um, yeah, I wonder. Hopefully, listeners hit skip fifteen seconds through that rant. Um, yeah, I, I, the I, the answer is Holger. I, I think we, I, David, you, DK, you get the final words on this category. I do think Ben could win it next year, but like it, it's Holger, right? He might win it unanimously. I mean, there could be some enterprising Aussie journalist who would make the argument <laughs> that the new Nick Kyrgios is the newcomer of nope. the year, but I think I think. Literally speaking, as in people who have existed on this tour, I think it would be Holger Runa. Well, that's a very interesting point to make because that leads us to our final serious award, which is, of course, the Comeback Player of the Year. I don't think Nick Kyrgios qualifies in that category, but like in this hypothetical scenario where we break rules here at Cracked Rackets, that's not a bad nominee. Now, again, I've got a list, but I want to hear your uh, your choice, Gil. Who's your Comeback Player of the Year? Uh, it's Borna Chorich. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have liked to see somewhat of a larger body of work, but at the same time, I don't think that's what this award is about. It's not about body of work. It's about, you know, being down and out, being, you know, the forgotten person, going through adversity and kind of reaching e- either greater heights than you than you ever achieved or or you kind of get back to uh, where you once were. But for George, there were definitely doubts that, that he would get there. Um, shoulder surgery is no joke. And... He comes in and puts together one of the more impressive runs of the season uh, in winning Cincinnati. It was not an easy draw. Uh, the wins were impressive, and you know it's a Masters 1000 tournament. And was there some fizzling after that? Was there you know a little bit more to be desired around the edges of that? Yes, but I also think like just from a pure tennis standpoint, you know he's shown the medal. Um, and he's shown enough to to really kind of be excited about uh, what he's able to do last year. And I, I think clearly, easily, slam dunk, top 30 player if healthy. Um, and, and I know his ranking is already there, but, you know, it's because of Cincinnati. I think week in, week out, I'll even go as far as top 20 player easily uh, next season. So I think Chorich off the shoulder surgery is your uh, comeback player of the year. It's not about a body of work. It's about a body that works. That's what this comeback player of the year is about. And DK, I think Borna Chorich. 
is going to win this award running away. Um, do you have even another nominee, or is he your obvious pick? You didn't like he the certainly... body of work joke? No, I have a better one. I was going to say he certainly has a body that works. That's, but, um, just, that's what I was going to yeah. say, too, but I was like, maybe that's where DK will go next. Yeah. So no, I mean, I, I remember seeing that picture of George <laughs> in Central Park with the sling and thinking, what is Warner George doing in New York? And I come to find out that, you know, this massive injury and he spends all this time off tour. I mean, I think you can also you can make maybe an argument for Curios, who did start the year 93 and is now a top 20 player and as, as serious a contender for a Grand Slam title as, he, as he's ever been. What's he um, coming think... back from? What's mental he coming health, back from? Mental health struggles. I mean, yes, or just tennis. Like, it, can that be what the there, comeback there is? There has certainly been some cheesing of what constitutes a comeback. I feel like in years past, there have been maybe like a Venus Williams who was not really out for a significant period of time, but just sort of endured some ranking decay and then had a really great like 2017 for example like i don't think she missed a ton of 2016 i think she was nominated for comeback of the year and i think even lucic baroni like multiple times was perhaps nominated for comeback of the year although she'd like her comeback was from like 1999 but she'd been playing on tour for several years i think there is a bit of wiggle room with what what constitutes a comeback um but that said yeah i mean by the most uh traditional definitions it's it's clearly chorish yeah you guys are right, but I'll say this for the hipsters. The answer is 23-year-old Ebing Wu, and that's for you, DK, because I know you love Ebing Wu. Um, there was a moment Rink. on the challenge. Yeah, I mean, there's just moments where he looked like maybe the best player in the world on the Challenger Tour. Where you're just like, we did cover Ebing Wu, for the record, on baseline. He was one of our beginner's guides mm-hmm. when he was about to play Daniel Medvedev. So we have not slept on Ebing Wu at tennis.com. No, let, 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 that, let the record show. Uh, very true. And, again, given all the injuries he's had since his junior U.S. Open title many moons ago – uh, he's on the precipice of being a top 100 player, 118 in the rankings, and still didn't play that full of a schedule. I think he belongs in this comeback conversation, but there are always a lot of fun comeback player of the year cases, and certainly it'll be fun to see who the nominees are. Will Federer be on that list? Will that be the Serena inclusion equivalent, Gil? For for what comeback? For I... comeback player of the year, Roger Federer, because he played one more match. He came back. Yes. They're going to yeah. have to nominate him. It's an ATP match. It counts. A hundred percent. I also think, like, he played one match, so he will win the Sportsmanship Award for the 17th and 18th <laughs> years. Like, you can just lock that in right now. They I mean, narratively speaking, he, he could be the player of the year. When you remember 2022, it'll, you'll remember it as the year that Roger Federer retired. And that's, that's the one good... thing that no one will – not, no future statistics will impact that. In any That's way. part of the no, no drama, no, 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 no drama category. So we'll get there. I promise, DK. But with that said, now we get to get funky. And now we get to get into some of the arbitrary concepts I brought here on today's show. Those are your mainstream awards. We can go these, do these much quicker. Rather than each list our top three rivalries, here's what I want to do. We're going to do this draft style. We're going to do a snake draft. So Gil draft first. DK, do you want to draft third or second? I will go third. Okay, perfect. So you know, obviously it goes Gil, me, DK, DK, me, Gil. Yeah, We're going to pick rivalries until one of us says there's no longer anything interesting. So you tell me, Gil, you get to pick your favorite rivalry from this 2022 season. Let's just go down the list. What are the best rivalries right now on the ATP Tour? Um, with the first pick in the 2022 <laughs> Great Shop Podcast Awards. Yeah. Gilgrove selects Tyrios Tsitsipas as Ooh. the number one rivalry. I mean, this was, you know, if you want to talk about 
kind of mental warfare affecting what is happening on a tennis court. Uh, there is nothing to the extent that Kyrgios Tsitsipas brought to us in terms of rivalry. You had Stefanos absolutely acting out, uh, Nick completely in his head. And on top of that, high stakes matches. Like we had a Wimbledon third round match that, you know, where ultimately the winner of that match went on to advance to the Wimbledon final. Um, and, you know, Tsitsipas with so much on the line, given his, you know, Wimbledon struggles, the fact that a lot of people look at his game, they think you should do well on grass and he hasn't. Uh, it was probably outside, you know, if you're going to say pre-semifinal, what were the biggest matches of the year that brought the most buzz to the tennis world? Uh, that is right, right up there. Uh, it might be number one. And uh, I think Kiro Tsitsipas uh, belongs in that spot. It's a great pick. The most texts I got all season long was during that Wimbledon matchup, and just we all got it. Everyone was watching it. It happened to be perfectly timed, right, on a midday, on a Saturday, and so it caught everyone's attention. That's a great pick. I just want to show off to DK. Gil, I guarantee you you can guess my pick. Do you want to just tell the listeners what my pick's going to be? This I don't want it to be your pick. I yeah. mean, are you going to pick Medvedev Tsitsipas? Okay, no, I'm not. I'm glad you put that on the list. I thought about that. I went Alcaraz Sinner, and that's like the most cracked rackets pick you can make. But look, I said it earlier in the pod, there is a world where Carlos Alcaraz loses his quarterfinal match to Yannick Sinner. And not only would that mean the entire slam is a different outcome, but that also would have been three consecutive losses from Alcaraz uh, to Sinner throughout the course of this season. Obviously, Sinner got him at Wimbledon, you know, beats him, come from behind, three sets, six seven, six one, six one, pretty definitively in Croatia, and then had the match point on his racket at the U.S. Open. And, like, it's a little bit projection, but this is the one moving forward, and boy, did we get a juicy appetizer of it at the U.S. Open. If that's round one, lock me in. That's pick number two here in our GSP draft. Picks three and four. DK, now on the clock. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a little mad because my my number one pick got got stolen. But I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll in that vein, I'm going to go with my number three is Casper uh, Ruud versus Holger Rune, which is another mm. hilarious uh, a match that I certainly won't forget. It had everything. It had it had locker room taunts. It had multilingual cheers. It had uh, a weird eye roll at the net between uh, Rude and Rune. Casper's uh, mother and uh, no, Casper's father and Holger's mother sort of sniping at each other in the press. It's it's the sort of stuff I tune in for, to tennis for. So it was certainly my my top rivalry. And I guess to get a little boring, I guess we could talk about the Djokovic Nadal rivalry to follow that up. I mean, obviously we had a pretty you know whatever. <laughs> I, I certainly watched all four and a half hours of it. Did you? <laughs> I had to live blog it um, at the French Open. It was one of those, you know, tent pole matches, a match that, you know, to the extent that we're teeing up Nadal as player of the year was certainly one of those big matches for for either of them. It really could have defined either of them as player of the year. Djokovic wins that match. He goes on to win Paris, wins Wimbledon, and then obviously it's a much clearer path to uh, for Djokovic for player of the year. Instead, Nadal gets the win, reclaim, you know, gets that revenge from last year. Uh, when he lost the French Open to Djokovic and then uh, obviously went on to win the title. So yeah, those those are my top two going uh, going into the draft. Shocked it took us four picks to get to Djokovic or Nadal. I, I was wondering who was going to do it. You made the that I kind mean, of podcast. It, no, exactly. It has to be on there. All right, I've got four nom- five nominees I'm looking at. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I'm going Djokovic Medvedev just because I think at a certain point we just got to be like, what's really good tennis? And whenever these two take the court together, Astana, certainly we saw it at the tour finals, it's just really good tennis. So I pick Djokovic Medvedev. That's my explanation. Gil? Yeah, that was mine. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the one that I wanted to go with. Tactically, it's been fascinating. A lot of people think like Djokovic and Medvedev are are clones that they play the same. Uh, just you know, watch them play, and you'll realize no, they're trying to do something completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Djokovic has been, you know, trying to point very hard to point shorten against Medvedev, and Medvedev's trying to make it you know physical, um, you know, into a, a track meet. Well, so I listed three, and now they're all gone. So, so I don't know. So this is where we're done. I'll give you two nominees. You can tell me if you want to steal. Nadal, okay. Ki- Nadal, Kyrgios. I don't like the rivalry. I, I, I mean. You know, you can say we, no. I won't be offended. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's much there. I think there was, but I don't think there's much there. DK? I was going to say my other favorite rivalry is uh, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina versus Gravity. <laughs> It's just one that it's the gift that keeps on giving, and I can't wait to see more of it in 2023. Well, that's what I have. FAA versus Finals is on my list. You know, uh, Riley Opelka versus Twitter is on my list. But the last one I would say to you is— Oh, no. It's not a rivalry at all. Tsitsipas versus Rublev. Is that at all sniffing it after this year, Gil? Does it deserve an honorable mention? I mean, Tsitsipas-Alcaraz is a better rivalry than Tsitsipas-Rublev, I think. Okay. I mean, you know, Tsitsipas is one of the top players that Rublev plays well and seems to, like— match up well with and it's definitely like a 50 50 matchup like i'm always curious to see who's gonna win it it has that going for it uh that's kind of suspense uh but i I, i'm much more interested to see Pass play alcaraz because that's been so one-sided uh for for alcaraz and it's a big problem for Pass if that continues completely fair dk any final thoughts on rivalries uh, just that I want to see more Djokovic versus Alcaraz and Djokovic versus Runa matches. I mean, it's hard to call them rivalries because they've just played once, but I think I want to see more of that going forward for sure. Kind yeah. of a duh, uh, but whatever. Needs to be no. said. Uh, it, it's a very good call as well. All right. With that said, DK, this is one you might have been like, I don't get this. It's the people aren't talking enough about award. And this is just a shout out. It's a bit Gil and I do on every show where, you know, for a decade and a half, every commentator during a Rafa Nadal match would go, you know, people aren't talking enough about how good a volleyer Rafa is, right? That's the standard for the people aren't talking enough about award. And so, you know, at the end of every season, you like to look at those perhaps cliches that got recycled repeatedly throughout the course of the year. Gil, do you have any nominees for the people aren't talking enough about award? Because I've got a list. Yeah, I mean, my main one is is Root is good on hardcore. Yeah! <laughs> I mean, we got to stop with this. My God, every time he does well on hard courts, you have people <laughs> saying like, why am I, why are people still saying that he can't win on hard courts? It's like, everyone has moved on from that. Okay. Can we not just make this imaginary straw man of people who are saying that he's a clay court specialist? Every time he wins off clay, we are subjected to this. And it is ridiculous. That's the number one unequivocal, like unequivocal number one. That was top of my list. You might feel like that's a personal assault, DK, so I'll let you respond. I'm just trying to wrap my head around sort of the context of this category. (laughs) That it's it's a thing that people talk about a lot, but it's actually a thing that doesn't, that isn't real and isn't like, isn't rooted in any kind. It's, it's a, it's a straw man argument basically is what we're getting at. That we're our most, but, but it's something that we don't want to hear more about. It's not something that we're bringing up as something. Yes. The answer to (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, 
Yeah, I, I, had, I had an earnest one, but not because it wasn't. In no, the no, way no. That, give me your earnest. Give me your earnest one, please. No, it was just like people aren't talking enough about the fact that Daniil Medvedev has sort of lost his mojo. That was kind of where I was going with that because that's sort of that's reality. I it's true. I am at. I understand the con. The, the the implication behind bringing up. It's true. I remember. Oh God, this is a this is a poll. People don't talk about how great Nadia Petrova is at the net yeah. every time. She's a top three doubles player. She's so great at the net. I watched a lot of Nadia Petrova matches. I was never impressed by her volleying, but whatever. That's something that was brought up in every one of those matches. But yeah, I, yeah, I think that the rude one is fair. I mean, I think even, God, even I fall into the trap of asking him how he adjusts to hardcore matches when he has even said that part of the key to what he believes his, to his clay court success was playing more like he was playing on hard courts, that he was actually being too defensive in Monte Carlo and Madrid and that being more offensive in Roman Roland Garros helped him win more matches. So yeah, that's definitely one that I, if I was listening to commentary and wasn't watching tennis on mute the way that I always do, I guess I would be hearing that a lot more. Oh, well, that's, that's why you missed that's, the tone's yeah, DK. That's very, that's very offensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. If, I knew, if you're on, I, I listen to it, of course. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let, let me tell you, though, the uh, the original, and Grusky, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the the impetus of this creation was that Nadal can't go to net without people saying that Nadal is actually a good volleyer. A hundred percent. And they have they have said it, and I think it's died down a little bit now, where, like, everyone... <sighs> maybe, I don't know. Like, maybe not, but, I mean, it's been maybe five years of you know nadal's follies are actually really good and it's just like we know yeah and you know what's slowly getting into that category is djokovic as a volleyer like they're slowly very sure like oh his willingness to move forward behind the serve it's like yeah he's never done that before you're right that's it's like no it's come on get your get the stuff together i mean yeah, there's there's other nominees for this category. People don't talk enough about Zverev melting down at slams. Like, no, we probably talk about it enough. Like, we, I don't we think see, we talk about that enough. <laughs> yeah, we see it enough. But you talk about some the, of us need to be reminded of that when they're well, when they're forecasting ten plus slams for Alexander Zverev. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no comment. I, that guy sounds stupid. Um, Benoit. So you brought up the Daniil Medvedev though, and your earnest people aren't talking enough about his struggles. Benoit pair flops of the year. I think the category is pretty self explanatory. Was this your flop for Daniil Medvedev, DK? It was. I mean, again, talk about, like, narrative momentum. He ends last year winning the U.S. Open, you know, playing really well on hard courts in the fall, getting into the final, going up two sets on Nadal, and not getting the job done and not really being the same since. Yes, he gets – I tweeted about this, I think, last week. I said it's it's quite a weird way to caveat that we have to caveat – Besides getting to world number one, it was kind of a crappy year for Daniel Medvedev. And obviously not all of it was his own fault. He wasn't able to play Wimbledon. Maybe if he'd been able to play a full schedule without, you know, and we don't know emotionally, mentally, what sort of world events were playing on his head going into these tournaments. But I mean, from being unequivocally like a top two, top three guy to really not being a factor much at all at, at most tournaments this year was was really shocking and, and, and a big disappointment for me. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair, Gil. Yeah, so I I like it sort of. I like it to an extent because uh, I do think it's a fascinating conversation in terms of, you know, what has happened to Medvedev? Why isn't he the same as he was the last, you know, couple of years? I just think there are a lot of explanations for it. You know, the, the Nadal match in Australia where he was up two sets to love in a major final, uh, that, you know, probably left some scarring. Uh, then you have the the hernia that he sustained, and I do think it affect his, affected his serve uh, for quite a while. Now he can't play Wimbledon. What does that do to his motivation? You add on the the Russia's 
you know, uh, invasion of Ukraine and the distraction that that is. There are so many explanations for why Medvedev may have had a down year that I do think while it's a fascinating thing to to kind of talk about and discuss, I do think likely we look at it as, okay, he bounces back, you know, pretty soon. And this was just kind of a rough year for him. Whereas I, I think there were some flops that are maybe better for this category because they're harder to explain. Yeah. Fair. I, it's a, it's a, you know how we talked about the leap and that being the most significant thing. Why I would re- DK's argument resonates with me is it's like the window was clearly open for Daniil Medvedev. I mean, he's up two sets to love, love 40, about to go up a break in the third set on Rafa. He loses that match and really didn't threaten for another slam title for the rest of the season. Didn't really threaten for another 1000 level title even the rest of the year. Now, he still found his way into the final eight, but like, here's a fun fact for you, Gail. Medvedev's ending the year ranked seven. Like, that just doesn't feel right. Like him being number seven in the world, saying that out loud and seeing that number next to him. So I do think it's Crazy. a good argument from DK. That said, when you looked at this category, Gil, who are the players that stood out? Uh, Karatsev. <laughs> um, yeah. Just, Ouch. just, yeah. I mean, just a player, you know, coming off most, what, what was he? Uh, most improved? I yeah. think so. Last year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, coming off most improved, I mean, to have the season that he had, uh, it's, you know, a complete discontinuation of that. And I, I mean, there's still kind of a mystery to Karatsev because it wasn't just like he had a run in Australia. And I understand that that was kind of what we think about, okay, he made the semifinals. There was a period of four or five months there uh, where, you know, going back to the challenger level at the end of, of 2020, where Karatsev ran the table, qualified for Australia, made the semis, came out of that, had more great results. I think he had a big run in Dubai. So it was looking like Karatsev was just a bona fide top 25 player. And and now he comes out and it's kind of, he's clearly not. What happened there for five months? Uh, other people I have is Benoit Pair, uh, because <laughs> the award is named after him, but this would be the year he would also win it. Uh, let's be very, very clear about that. I don't know what's next for Benoit Pair because his, you know, I think he's what, outside the top 150 yeah. now. And then here's my, here's a pick that I think is uh, should really be considered. Hugo Umber, mm-hmm. after beating Daniil Medvedev at the ATP Cup, it's like okay, here's this talented guy. We all think worlds of his game. You know, he has a you know brilliant uh, 500 level title on grass in Hala. You know, he's young. Uh, there's a lot of shot making talent there. I think everybody thought that he was going to go upwards, and he goes on this mammoth losing streak after that win over Medvedev at ATP Cup, just hasn't been able to cement himself as like an ATP Tour level player, really. He's kind of been between kind of challenger level and ATP level. That's a huge shock for his level of talent. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. The I mean, Karatsev is a very, very clear pick. The two names I would point to, and it's too extreme to say a Benoit player flop of the year, but, like, I, and this is another November podcast, December podcast open to either of you. But, like, when I look at Alex Demonauer's season, I'm just kind of like, what happened? Like, why what? wasn't it better? It was just wait, like. Wait, it was really good. It was better than last year. Yeah, but was it? Like, then why doesn't it feel better? Something just wrong happened there. The perception <laughs> of Demonauer, because I don't think he changed in the rankings. Like, I think he stayed at 24. Or, like, maybe he was, like, 25 last year, 26. But it's like, 
what happened? What am I missing? Like, why didn't it all click? Because I, I just, I need to unpack the Demon Hour season. But the guy who I would put on this list, yeah, I know. It's, it's a DK, I'm sorry not to shut you out. The guy I would put on this list is Grigor Dimitrov, where it just kind of feels like, and I know injuries oh. have played a role, and I know, again, he has shown flashes of a really high level, but, like, I think the top 10 window's closed. Like, I just don't see a world where Grigor Dimitrov ever gets back to the top 10 DK. And, again, that's not quite a Benoit pair flop, but it's certainly, if you're in the Dimitrov camp, like, I think it's a realization you come to where it's kind of like, what is the ceiling moving forward? And first of all, I just want listeners to know we're about 12 hours out from Thanksgiving, and mm. Alex Gruskin is really apoplectic about the state of Alex Diminar's career. <laughs> yeah. so really, that's where we are. That's, so we're really, really digging into what matters here on this Crack Rackets podcast. It's a really, it's a great shot all around. I think I, think I need a great shot after this. But, that's um, good. No, I mean, first of all, Dimitrov, like fully hoodwinked me in dc he gave this like beautiful press conference about how he's going to be back in the top 10 and that's his tennis and he's going to do it and oh boy did he not do it after dc i don't I, what did he win like a handful of matches between now between then and the end of the year like that was a flop i mean i think my karatsev started the year winning sydney i mean we were talking about like what the buffer was going to be in terms of his ao semifinal points because he won this title and now oh, we can even maybe even gain points and then really just disappeared for the rest of the season i mean the weirdest flop and this you know goes into who constitute what constitutes a flop i mean has anyone won two masters but has very little else to show for it more than stefano sitsipas i mean like i think this is like this was like an 18 month flop i mean since not winning the french open has just not been a factor in real in matches that really really matter and obviously yes masters are great i mean yes he won monte carlo and, and you know beat fokina in the final that's that happened. Um, but I mean, he was number two seed in, in Turin last week, which felt, you know, really overinflated relative to what he'd really accomplished this year. And then obviously doesn't make it out of the round robin uh, draw. It gets his one win over a, a, an equally flopping Daniel Medvedev. So, I mean, I'm curious to see what he could do in 2023 to sort of right this ship because it feels like he's just didn't know where he was headed after 2021 and has seemingly only gotten worse in 2022. I mean, just the, it, we don't talk enough about the performance that he put on against Nick Kyrgios as much as we, you know, castigate Kyrgios for his behavior. I mean, Sitsipas was really going for the jugular and, and, and multiple times in that match in a way that felt really unhinged. I mean, we talk about, you know, Kyrgios being unhinged, but I think like it was really bananas. Some of the stuff we saw from Sitsipas in 2022. So I, he's really got to rein in that ship. And even just towards the end of the year, the stuff we, you know, with his parents and, and his family, that sort of discord that seems to be constant amongst them and, Something needs to be fixed because he seems like a good guy generally, but, you know, perhaps some demons there that aren't really evident based off sort of the brand that is Stefano Tsitsipas. Yeah, it's it's crazy with him because we went from, at least some of us, uh, talking about his backhand return and his slice as being the main issues that that's holding him back, you know, the weaknesses that he needs to address. And, I mean, after this year, it seems that, you know, those things are secondary for just what's happening upstairs. And, and yeah, that's completely new this year. Uh, that said, he, he uh, played way too much and led the tour in wins. So it's kind of hard to say that he's the flop, but I, I also see where you're coming from. Let the record also show, I just, not to make light of what was a very good conversation, but DK, you don't think people are talking enough about it? No, I don't. I would like to talk a lot more about it. <laughs> okay, we'll put it on. Because I feel like he, between him and obviously Zverev and Sitsipas are two very different situations. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, we 
certainly looked at both of them as being the future. And now I think the more we learn about them, the more we're learning that perhaps there's more than meets the eye and maybe we shouldn't immediately look a gift horse in the mouth to mix my metaphors. Well, fair. All right. I promised Gil we were going to keep it under an hour and a half, so we're going to rapid fire through these final three categories. We'll go quick. Uh, best players to watch, not in terms of the players to watch moving oh. forward, but let's be clear. Who were the best players to watch compete on court this season? The most compelling views. We're going to just go give me your top three, Gil, and then UDK, and then I'll offer mine. I have Tiafo here. I think he's you know clearly one of the best showmen uh, on the ATP tour. He does it in, in a way that you know, I consider very, very unoffensive. Uh, I understand that some fans are just like, why is he doing that? And they get upset, which is fine. Uh, I think that's actually probably a good thing. Um, You know, we need players who are going to make fans feel something. And I think Tiafo does do that. Um, Max Cressy with his style, like for the level of player he is right now, the fact that, you know, he can generate as much interest as he does for like a oh, Medvedev has drawn Cressy in the second round of the Australian Open or whatever it is. Uh, That's pretty special, like that he can just do that with a style. So I think Cressy has to be in the conversation. And lastly, Seb Baez, uh, Sebastian Baez, who had had an awful finish to the year as soon as he got off clay. It was bad. Uh, But for the clay court season, it was pretty awesome seeing a player uh, that explosive. I thought it was you know, there was a little bit of Alcaraz stuff going on with the explosiveness and the athleticism at the size that he is at uh, for him to kind of produce the firepower that he does, especially on the forehand side. That is something that I think everyone can get behind watching. It is really, really entertaining. DK? Yeah, it's definitely big ups to Baez and talk about a sliding doors moment of that year. If he converts that match point against Zverev in Roland Garros, maybe a very different season because then obviously then Zverev doesn't go on to, you know, rip his ankle in half in the semifinals against Rafael Nadal. So a huge moment there that, you know, we don't talk enough about. Um, <laughs> but um, obviously, yeah, I mean, TFO is box office. And obviously I, I mentioned Davidovich, Fokina and Gravity. I certainly love tuning into that. Um, yeah, those would be my top three. No, that's good. I have Alcaraz because again, Everyone was tuning into Carlos Alcaraz Called having this taste. season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think Tiafo has to be on the list. <sighs> I mean, Nick Kyrgios probably belongs on the list, guys. Like, I, I mean, oh, yeah. he, when he's playing, people tune in. And so I would throw him on there. And then, just because I was there, I'm telling you folks to keep name-dropping this player, Ben Shelton. Like, I was at the Kasparud match. It was a college crowd in a pro environment. And you just don't see that very frequently. And that's all the shades of, ooh, could be exciting moving forward. And speaking of exciting, he had a moment award. What does that mean? Well, I told this to Gil yesterday when I was explaining this award to him. It's literally so I can point out things like, remember when Miamir Kesmenovic was really, really good in the first six weeks, eight weeks, three months of the season? He had a moment. Me either. Yeah, <laughs> here this year. Or like... Sebi Baez, home stretch of the clay court season. He was having a moment. Honestly, Lorenzo Musetti from like August to October. He had a moment. Gil, I gave you some warning of what this category meant, so I turn to you. Any nominees you'd like to throw out there? Yeah, there were two weird titles this year. Mm-hmm. The first, and I think this is pretty obvious, was Tim von Reichhoven, which yeah. is just a insane run in her Togenbosch. He had uh, a moment. He he had a big moment. I mean, let me just we gotta. I want to pull this up because uh, it. He was, beats Medvedev in the final, right? 
Yeah, so, well, it's it really started with, he beat Taylor Fritz in the, yeah. in the round of 16, and it was like, whoa, that is yeah. a crazy loss for Fritz. <laughs> then he beats Gaston, and it's like, oh, he kept it going, good for him. Then he beat the top two seeds in the draw. He beat Felix, and then he beat Medvedev. Yeah. So it doesn't get crazier than that. By the way, he had a good Wimbledon as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, credit to, to you and I, Gross, because, I mean, we were both like, uh, let's see how this looks off the grass. Yeah, yeah. I need a, a little quicker surface, please. Or a little slower surface, please. Yeah, yeah. So we were a little bit dubious, and uh, he kind of uh, proved that we had the right read on that. Uh, the second one was Nishioka. Uh, Nishioka's title was also pretty uh, pretty out of nowhere, pretty weird. Great to see. Very entertaining. It was fun in Seoul, Korea. Great crowds. Uh, but that I think those were the two weirdest titles of the ATP season. DK, do you understand the criteria yeah, now? Any the, nominees? The, the Ketsmanovic one is a really good poll because, I mean, God, another sliding doors moment that I think was the quarterfinal in Miami between him and uh, Carlos Alcaraz. I don't know if he mm -hmm. had a match point, but was really pretty close to winning that one. And, and narratively, we're both sort of on a similar track. And obviously, Ketsmanovic loses that match and doesn't go on to do a whole much, a whole lot more uh, in the rest of the season. I think he won a set on Djokovic in Serbia, and that was sort of one of those moments where it was like the thing that what nourishes me destroys me. Like he was so motivated to sort of like carry the flag for Novak, but then when he gets the chance to kind of beat his idol, wasn't able to pull it over the finish line. And so, yeah, that was, that was, he really did have a moment that first, first three months yeah. where he felt like he was going to be a factor in a way that he had never been before. Mm -hmm. I wanted to throw Nakashima on the list, but I think he just improved down the second, like it's not a moment. He was just really good down the season's home stretch same with Musetti. It's like it wasn't a moment. It's just a thing. There's a difference between a moment and a thing. Here's the last one I want to throw at you, and I'll start with you, Gil. Late season Chapo. Was that just another moment, or is this a thing? Because down the home stretch of 2022, post US Open, Chapo wasn't that bad. Yeah, no, but it, he was, here's dare the I thing. say, good. No, but it's not about that for me. It's okay. not about the results. Like we've seen Chapo have good results, you know, big whoop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what what caught my attention is he looked like a totally different player. Um, he was someone who wasn't leaving his feet when, you know, when he was loading up for his ground strokes, or I should say swinging through his ground strokes, someone who was keeping his head still, someone who was controlling the wild follow through on his backhand. Like everything about how he was playing, it looked different. And if you were going to ask me about coach of the year, which I thought you might have, but you might have cut it for time, <laughs> I was going to say, Peter, we got to maybe talk about Peter Polanski yeah. because Chapo is that guy who every coach in the world is like, if I coached him, yeah. <laughs> I'd fix it. I'd fix it. People like, don't talk enough about how he needs good coaching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, no, you wouldn't fix it because all of these really good coaches have tried and they have all failed. So you wouldn't fix it. Peter Polanski, I mean, might have fixed it. So I don't think it's a moment, but it also could be. We need to see if he continues to actually play with that kind of discipline and that control at the start of next year. For the record, coach of the year, yes, cut for time. Uh, DK, <laughs> final thoughts on these had a moment uh, awards. I mean, are, there, are we missing? I, I know I kind of asked you this already, but on this late season Chapo push, like is that a moment or is this a real, you know, why I say it's a moment because to Gil's point, it just is like, did something click with Polanski? It's like, is this a real thing? Do we have to, you know, I, I said this again, and it's on my list of December podcasts, which again, you're more than welcome to partake in. It's like, 
it was just good enough again down the season's home stretch to where it's like, well, I can't sell the stock yet. Like, I have to hold because if that month is what we get for the first four months, now we're back in. I mean, I watched him play Rublev at the U.S. Open and, you know, tactically it was just a fascinating matchup and Rublev got the upper hand on him. So, And the fact that Chapo wasn't able to sort of get over the finish line on that gave me some pause. But I mean, there is something to be said about working with a new coach, looking different on court, just tactically looking stronger. And that's those are sort of the hallmarks to kind of earmark <laughs> when okay. you're trying to handicap who actually has some long term potential to maybe change some things, because otherwise, you know, he is sort of that sort of flash and flash and burn kind of guy where it's going to be, you know, a big result and then some uh, some some highs and some lows. So I think if we could see some consistency from him going into 2023, then it's one of those things where we have to we need more data points. We're going to see how he performs at a slam and then say, OK, compared to U.S. Open, he's made such and such improvements. Yeah, I think that's a very good call by you. I, I again, shout out to you, Gil Gross, for throwing out the Peter Polanski reference because i do actually think it's a very important part of the conversation i'll give you i guess now i lied you have the final word on who had a moment oh didn't i get that i already talked about oh final word yeah i i was just very determined to get peter polanski in the podcast yeah good good good. well done you could cut whatever you want for time but i was gonna make it happen to quote second serve that's gruskin bingo right there congrats you hit it um all right last but not least award we're not going to sneak it in in under two minutes, but we will get it in in under five. Um, the And actually, before we get to it, copyright reasons, we're not going to be able to play the song. Gil, will you please sing the opening verse to my humps for David and I? Because I think the fans deserve your rendition. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to lose everything. Well, yeah. Well, will you just give me the my humps? My humps, my lovely lady lumps, <laughs> as you said it yesterday. It was so monotone. It was, check it out. Um, and yeah, that was, it was really well done, uh, DK. And I mean, a good Black Eyed Peas album, right? Oh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still stuck on, on Gil's video from when he was in Texas. And, they, <laughs> and it cuts to Gil and he just goes, yeehaw. <laughs> it's very, very much that vine of the, of the guy watching the girl uh, vape. It just goes, wow. <laughs> on, on this, on this uh, non-visual podcast, I hope everyone can, can visualize what I was talking about. There. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll send the clip with the video. That's good. But okay, the final award in honor of the song My Humps. No, no drama. No, 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 no drama, which of course alludes to the fact that as we put this final bow on 2022, there was a lot of drama. There were a lot of fun storylines for us to monitor throughout the course of the year. With that said, DK, I'll start with you here. Your no, no drama, no, 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 no drama award recipient goes to. This would have to be Holger Runa, who just really just like a lightning rod. And he's sort of like, and he's such a weird dichotomy for me because he will get involved and people will have such strong reactions to him on court. And then he'll be on Twitter within like an hour of his match sort of like <laughs> happily chirping with fans and like, and going back and making, posting a video that I'm not sure if he made, but he posted a video about his interaction with umpire Muhammad Layani about how he was robbed of a point. And I, I watched it and I thought, did you make this video? Holgeruda? did you get off the court and like make a video about how you were wronged by umpire Muhammad Leoni I hope so if it if it does if he did it certainly and it improves my respect for him by by a factor of about a million but yeah he's 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 a lightning rod and people really have some strong opinions about him and yet you know behind the scenes he's from everything I've encountered he's very easy to work with so that's certainly going to become 
tricky where he's going to be in a lot of people's faces over the next couple of years, whether people like it or not. So that's going to be uh, interesting to grapple with, especially now as the game continues to improve. Gil? Yeah, he's like maybe the first, I mean, we've talked about this for a while, like this younger generation, what are they going to be like in terms of uh, how might they be different in terms of how they interact with their fan bases and social media and stuff? He's liking tweets. Like, <laughs> let's just say, like, he's liking tweets. He's out there uh, kind of more unfiltered and loose. He's on... liking tweets. That was good. Sorry. It's just, that's a good one. Yeah. So I, you're, that's, it's fascinating. And I, yeah, yeah I'm, um, I'm interested to see if that changes, like, if they take his phone. or if they uh or if they're just like hey go out there and like just be a normal person on social media even though you're the world number 11 because he seems to have like sort of a social media manager he's got that guy with him from the Mortoglu academy i think he's like a performance analyst but then he's also on social media with him seemingly for him so it's a it's strange because typically people either have their social medias run or they have it what what Holger is doing and I, I don't think we've seen this sort of and it's an interesting contrast to sort of like what Carlos Alcaraz does on Twitter which is a lot of minions gifs which is a really interesting development that I hadn't realized I was looking for a specific <laughs> gif that Carlos had tweeted I said oh I, I'll just scroll back it won't take that long I had to scroll back through months of gifs that Carlos Alcaraz was. he's the last person to be tweeting gifs with any with any regularity and 90% of them are minions gifs so it feels like sort of an unspoken people don't talk enough about that quite frankly because that's <laughs> that's all I wanted to talk about once I realized that this was like his favorite thing it's it's these guys are young yeah <laughs> no, really young. I mean so again it's fascinating go back on tennis tv and search like you know, tennis off-season, the tennis TV series they do, their three players from the past year were Felix, Runa, and Musetti. Like, talk about three documentaries that have aged well. Those are 12-minute videos well spent. Um, yeah, I mean, Runa, there is just something. You know, again, all of them. I think Tsitsipas has turned into a villain. Obviously, Kyrgios is happy to play the role of villain. We have some great villains emerging on the ATP uh. Tour, and I think you kind of need it. Yeah, but they look. We'll see about Runa. Like Tsitsipas, I don't buy that he. If you're gonna be a villain, yeah, you have to. You know, you can't be. You have in to and be out. a villain. You have to own it. Yeah, you need to be okay with it. And I don't buy. Like, look, Tsitsipas. Yeah, he had a villainous Instagram post. Is his next one gonna be villainous? What about the one after that? Like, <laughs> probably not. So, uh, I just. I don't think we've seen a player actually uh, play the role of heel properly since, like, I don't know. I I don't think any of these players are doing that. Let's just put it that way. Do you want my pick? Well, I would really love for, like, Tsitsipas' next post to be like, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. Like A that... very famous Stefano Tsitsipas quote. I, yeah, I think as, have to well, reference that. Yeah, exactly. Well attributed. But, no, I do. Who's your pick? Yeah, and also like he's not a good villain. Yeah, he's not good he's at it. Not, I that's the no. real that's the real case. You're right. Yeah, like he's too. I mean, and this is something that's kind of lovable about him. He's like just too, you know, quirky and awkward to be a villain. Yeah, well said. Uh, anyway, um, it's it's Djokovic uh, being deported. That's clearly the drama of the year. I mean, and and my. Look, there's a lot of serious undertones. There's a lot of emotion around what, what happened over there. One thing that I think we can all agree on was 
freaking hilarious is everyone who follows tennis and is engaged in tennis tuning in to some PM's weekly address oh my that God. turned out having nothing to do with Novak what, Djokovic. What was the all... Dane Sweeney or Swiney? Who was the who was the Twitter follow who we were all watching? There were a couple of them, but yeah, Karen Sweeney. Karen Sweeney, shout out. Yeah. Shout out to Karen Sweeney. Shout out to the fact that like we all spent 30 minutes of our lives watching a weekly brief. David uh, Kane came on and did reports. Australia. Yeah, DK came on and did reports like every day here at Crack. But Crack. I remember I remember that exact briefing where we were yeah. all convinced that that was going to be the one where he was going to address the deportations. <laughs> that, that whole week, I mean, yes, there was a lot of like a lot going on there, but that entire week of what played out, it was very camp, I have to say. That that was that, that's that wins the camp award just for he was deported. He wanted. They wanted to deport him. They undeported him. He walked around Australia for like five days. They tried to re-deport him, which he then appealed and then couldn't appeal it. He's then handed a three-year ban that I guess was overturned. I feel like either it was going to be overturned or it's like it's been overturned and then he has to reapply for a new visa. Like I feel like we haven't gotten quite to the end of it, but I guess we are, and I guess we'll see him in January. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction will be to him, because I think part of what was uh, part of what was underreported in last year's um, debacle or this year's debacle was that the Aussie crowd did not seem ready to receive him. And the fact that they gave him like a night match, if he had been, you know, successfully appealed that that deportation order, how would they have reacted to him on that at, at a 7 p.m. match in a rowdy Aussie crowd? It would have been it would have been wild uh, for sure. Yeah, he there was a lot of drama this year on Djokovic for sure. It's well said. I mean, my pick. Yeah, someone was banned for a country because they were trying to play a tennis tournament. Like, that's number one, <laughs> without question. I think, obviously, there are continuing issues as well, not to make light of it, but obviously Nick Kyrgios and what the trial he's undergoing in Australia, that serious drama for us to continue to follow that will have lasting impact into next season. Certainly the lack of developments in the ATP's domestic violence investigation about Alex Zverev. These are, are, again, other dramatic things that you will remember from the year. Surface debates, court speeds, court elevations. We don't talk about them enough, folks. Um, You know, thankfully, the tennis ball debate, if we never have it again, I will be happy. Um, Yeah, that, that would be my final thoughts, Gil. Last word on this goes to you. Yeah, some of those weren't dramas, but that's okay. I mean, in some, I I get where you're coming from. <laughs> hey, tennis ball debate. Uh, I was all about that. I mean, people should have oh been my educated. God. On that. And I'm just glad that we had that conversation because I think it was uh, very important. And I think uh, the U.S. Open needs to uh, needs to look into that. We've been around each other now for close to two hours, so I feel like we can do this. That is, oh, like here at Monday Match Analysis, we're going to compare the Wilson extra duty versus the Penn hard court balls. And I'm just like, that's a segment. That's what I'm going to skip, Gil. Yeah, you're damn right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Find it on YouTube, all right? You know what's in- incredible is it's going to get 15,000 likes or, or watches and views, and people will be in because you're the best in the business, my dear friend. Um DK, you're also exceptional. And did I mention extraordinarily handsome? That's, I think, the big thing I learned earlier. It needs to be thing number one that – People don't all... talk enough about that. <laughs> I never. Um, I, but before we let you go, obviously, tell me what you're up to over this next off-season month and if you have any final thoughts. I think we hit everything, but the, the floor is yours. God, besides scheduling my days off in December? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of retrospective content on .com and Baseline, top top 10 matches of the year, for courtesy of our own Steve Tigner, top five WTA players of the year. 
someone was robbed from the top five. And you're going to hear a little bit about that in sort of an honorable mentions category, top five ATP. And we're going to do some stuff similar to that on baseline, top five quotes, top five fashion looks. And when when Steph Liveday gets back from a dentist appointment, we're going to hash out the rest of those series for December, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun look back as we then look ahead to 2023, but n- nothing, nothing all that specific. I got one interview about, uh, with Joao Sousa about his hotel. That, that's, oh. uh, that'll be fun. Evidently people come far and wide to look at his Estoril trophy. This is yeah. what I, this is what I learned from the interview. No. Plus again, you've got 16 cracked rackets, November pods. You've already been signed up for Gil. Same question to you. What are you up to? What should we expect? Monday match analysis awards coming up. Um, a, a mailbag where I'm going to ban tennis questions is coming up. I'm so looking forward to that. I'm so excited for that. I mean, that's that's the off-season content that I want to plug. And, um, yeah, an end-of-year mailbag um, I will be recording tonight. So if uh, for a timely plug, I will also go with that. It's going to flood the zone with inappropriate questions for Gil Gross. Yeah. That's, that's my Wednesday night sorted. Here's what I uh, – not to impose myself on that, but, like, that – is awesome. I love that idea so much. I'm, that might be stolen at some point for December 15th for us here at Cracked Rackets because that's brilliant. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Yeah, you know what? Two things, DK, you want to ask him about. Food recommendations and thoughts because he'll hook you up. It's I've never had a conversation with Gil about food that I've come out of disappointed where I'm like, why did we talk about that? It's like any observation he has, I've always valued. And then honestly... Are we going to do dating advice with Gil Gross? You know, some scholars have argued the relationship between Gil Gross and Jenna Fink may define a generation of people. <laughs> it has been argued. Scholars have said. Yeah, well, since I know Jenna's listening to this, you think she made it since the figure skating talk, Gil, all the way to our minute number uh, 100 of the pod? It's all about the hook. If yeah. you have the hook, right, you keep, you, you know, they're in for the long yeah. haul. So. so back to the quad. Uh, but, no, with all that said, a massive thank you to you both for taking the time. This was long overdue. We finally got to do it. And the key thing is, guys, I promised over two, uh, over three hours of podcasts, if you need to get away from your Thanksgiving meals, uh, we have provided that now here at Crack Racket. So shout out to Gil. Shout out to DK. Shout out, of course, always to Super Producer Daniel Westoff, who has job to do day in day out and is currently enjoying some thanksgiving time with his family in louisville with that said 2022 atp award show in the books for the fantastic gil gross and david kane our super producer daniel westoff and all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin gil dk what do we tell our listeners Oh, no, we were so close. Leave it in. Do you want to try? Can we do a take two? Can we do a take two where we get it in sync? And honestly, Westoff, leave all of this in me asking for the take two if you'd like. But let's try that one more time. What do we tell our listeners? Hey, Hey, great great shot. shot. Yes, that was what I needed. Leave it in. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you to you both. We will all talk more soon. 